Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome to the Book of Mormon podcast. If you've been with us for a while, welcome back. If you're new, welcome. This discussion is going to be Alma chapter 1. So um, remember that uh, the heading of chapter, or the heading to the book of Alma is actually written by Mormon and translated by Joseph Smith. Um, not the heads of the chapters, but just the head of the book of Alma. Remember that we, we talked about Mosiah, <clears throat> that that one does not have a heading to that book, and that's why we think there's probably a couple of chapters missing. All right, let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> now, it came to pass that in the first year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, from the time forward, King Mosiah, having gone the way of all the earth, having warred a good warfare, King Mosiah had fought against wickedness and battled Beelzebub all his days. He had been true and faithful to his trust to lead his people in paths of truth and righteousness. He had passed the tests of mortality. His salvation was secure. He was like his colleague, on another continent, Paul the Apostle, who said just prior to his death, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course. That was by Millet McConkie. <clears throat> Continuing verse 1, Walking uprightly before God, leaving none to reign in his stead, nevertheless he had established laws, and they were acknowledged by the people. Therefore they were obliged to abide by the laws which he had made. And it came to pass that in the first year of the reign of Alma, in the judgment seat, there was a man brought before him to be judged, a man who was large and was noted for his much strength. And he had gone about among the people, preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church. This is the first time someone preached against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, and they ought not to labor with their hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. Hugh Nibley said, <clears throat> Next comes Nehor, the great liberal, declaring unto the people that every priest ought to become popular. This is a familiar liberal paradox. The liberal is unpretentious and open-minded, just like everybody else. Yet he forms a jealously guarded clique for the exploitation <clears throat> of the general public and distinguishes sharply between the intellectual class to which he belongs as a special elite and the layman who is expected to support him and to seek and to seek instruction at his feet. Verse 4, And he also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day, and that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men, and, all, and had also redeemed all men, and in the end all men should have eternal life. These teachings are contrary to the atonement of Christ. He is preaching false doctrine. However, this seems to be maybe what Satan uh, maybe had offered in the pre-mortal life, that if we doesn't matter if we sin, that we'll all be redeemed anyway. Verse 5, And it came to pass that he did teach these things so much that many did believe on his words, <clears throat> even so many that they began to support him and give him money. And he began to be lifted up in the pride of his heart and to wear very costly apparel, yea, and even began to establish a church after the manner of his preaching. Nehor started his own church. And it came to pass, as he was going to preach to those who believed on his word, he met a man who belonged to the church of God, yea, even one of their teachers, and he began to contend with him sharply. 
that he might lead away the people of the church. But the man withstood him, admonishing him with the words of God. Now the name of the man was Gideon, and it was he who was an instrument in the hands of God in delivering the people of Limhi out of bondage. Now because Gideon withstood him with the words of God, he was wroth with Gideon and drew his sword and began to smite him. Now Gideon, being stricken with many years, maybe around 50 years old or so, therefore he was not able to withstand his blows, therefore he was slain by the sword. Although this is the crime for which Nehor is punished, Mormon mentions the other crimes since they significantly affect the entire society. And the man who slew him was taken by the people of the church and was brought before Alma to be judged according to the crimes, not just murder, which he had committed. And it came to pass that he stood before Alma and pleaded for himself with much boldness. But, be, but Alma said unto him, Behold, this is the first time that priestcraft has been introduced among this people. Alma seems more concerned for the crime of priestcraft than for murder. And behold, thou art not only guilty of priestcraft, <clears throat> but has endeavored to enforce it by the sword. <clears throat> and were priestcraft to be enforced among this people, it would prove their uh, entire destruction. Bruce R. McConkie said, Priesthood and priestcraft are two opposites. One is of God, the other of the devil. When ministers claim to do to when, when ministers claim but do not possess the priesthood, when they set themselves up as lights to their congregations but do not preach the pure and full gospel, when their interest is in gaining personal popularity and financial gain rather than in caring for the poor and ministering to the wants and needs of their fellow men, they are engaged in a greater or lesser degree in the practice of priestcrafts. Apostasy is born of priestcraft. For those who engage in them follow vain things, teach false doctrines, love riches, and aspire to, to personal honors. Men are commanded to repent of, of their priestcrafts, and eventually, in the millennial day, these great evils will be done away. In a talk given, by, given to seminary and institute instructors, Robert Millett um, stated, There is a difference between developing and enjoying the needed rapport with our students on the one hand and developing a following on the other. We cannot always control how people feel toward us or what we teach but we can strive to be certain that our own motives are pure. I cannot speak for anyone else, but I believe it uh, that I have begun to attract people to myself rather than to the Lord that I need to undergo some serious introspection. My colleague Joseph McConkie observed to this group some years ago, sometimes we get in our own way. We block the light because we are standing center stage when we should have stepped to the side and just let the message speak for itself. We cause what I call spiritual eclipse. If I am driven more by ego than by a desire to lead people to Christ, if my desires for acclaim are greater than any than my desires to love and serve the Lord and his children, then my eyes then my eye is not single to the glory of God, and I will obstruct the light that might have been seen and felt. If, on the other hand, I am humbled to be in the presence of my students, sobered by the sacred assignment to instruct them, <clears throat> and fully cognizant of and willing to trust in him who is the real teacher and, and converter, then I will have the privilege of witnessing miracles, men and women coming unto Christ and being perfected in him. Verse 13, And thou hast shed the blood of a righteous man, yea, a man who has done much good among this people, and were we to spare thee, his blood would come upon us for vengeance. Um, uh, Charles W. Penrose, speaking of capital punishment, has said, This divine law for shedding the blood of a, of a murderer has never been repealed. It is a law given by the Almighty and not abrogated in the Christian faith. It stands on record for all time that a murderer shall, not have, his, shall have his blood shed. He that commits murder must be, must be slain. 
I know there are some benevolent and philanthropic people in these times who think that capital punishment ought to be abolished, yet I think the Lord knows better than they. The law he ordained will have the best results to mankind in general. Joseph Fielding Smith said, There is a growing notion in the world today that it is adding a crime to a crime to take the life of those who deliberately murder, a cruel retaliation which cannot benefit the murdered person, and likewise the murderer can reap no benefits therefrom. The real purpose which the Lord gave for the taking of life has, has long been forgotten. The taking of the life of the murderer was never intended to be a benefit to the murdered person or even a benefit to humanity. <clears throat> it was intended to be a benefit to the murderer himself. There are sins which cannot be forgiven except by the guilty person paying a price by the shedding of his blood. Capital punishment was to benefit the guilty to obtain a better resurrection when the sin had been won unto death. Verse 14, Therefore thou art condemned to die, according to the law which has been given us by Mosiah, our last king, and it has been acknowledged by this people. Therefore this people must abide by the law. And it came to pass that they took him, and his name was Nehor, which is Hebrew for lights. And they carried him upon the top of the hill Manti, and there he was caused, or rather did acknowledge, between the heavens and the earth, that what he had taught to the people was contrary to the word of God, and that and there he suffered an ignominious or dishonorable or shameful death. Nevertheless, this did not put an end to the spreading of priestcraft through the land, for there were many who loved the vain things of the world, and they were and they went forth preaching false doctrines, and this they did for the sake of riches and honor. Nevertheless, they durst not lie if it were known, for fear of the law, for liars were punished. Therefore, they pretended to preach according to their belief, and now the law could have no power on any man for his belief. And they durst not steal for fear of the law, for such were punished, neither durst they rob nor murder, for he that murdered and punished was punished unto death. Uh, verse 19, But it came to pass that whosoever did not belong to the church of God began to persecute those that did belong to the church of God and had taken upon them the name of Christ. Yea, they did persecute them and afflict them with all manner of words, and this because of their humility, because they were not proud in their own eyes, and because they did impart the word of God one with another without mercy and without price. Well, I'm sorry, without money. <laughs> without mercy? No, that's not right. Without money and without price. Now there was a strict law among the people of the church that there should not any man belonging to the church arise and persecute those that did not belong to the church and that there should be no persecution among themselves. <clears throat> Nevertheless, there were many among them who began to be proud and began to contend warmly with their adversaries. The spirit cannot and will not abide with those who seek by argument or heated discussion to establish the truth of spiritual matters. We teach and we testify, we bear witness, we speak with all the sobriety and sincerity we can muster. We plead with our listeners to give heed to our words, to ponder them and to petition the heavens to ascertain the truth, but we do not contend. Those church members who do not take the proper course in this regard, who argue endlessly and quarrel tirelessly, these lose the spirit of God and become an easy prey to the arch deceiver. Before they are aware, they lose their souls. Continuing verse 22, even unto blows, yea, they would smite one another with their fists. Every time they persecute this people, they elevate us and strengthen the hands and arms of this people. And every time they undertake to lessen our number, they increase it. Righteousness and power with God increase in this people in proportion to the devil, or as the devil struggles to destroy it. And that was by Brigham Young. Verse 23, now this was in the second year of the reign of Alma, and it was a cause of much affliction to the church. Yea, it was the cause of much trial with the church. 
for the hearts of many were hardened, and their names were blotted out, that they were re remembered no more among the people of God. President Kimball said, The scriptures speak of church members being cast out or cut off or having their names blotted out. This means excommunication. This dread action means the total severance of the individual from the church. The person who is excommunicated loses his membership in the church and all attendant blessings. As an excommunicant, he is in a worse situation than when he was before he joined the church. He has lost the Holy Ghost, his priesthood, his endowment, his ceilings, his privileges, and his claim upon eternal life. This is about the saddest thing which could happen to an individual. Better that he suffer poverty, persecution, sickness, and even death. A true Latter-day Saint would far prefer to see a loved one in, in his beer than excommunicated from the church. If the one cut off did not have this feeling of desolateness and barrenness and extreme loss, it would be evidence that he did not understand the meaning of excommunication. An excommunicant has no church privileges. He may not partake of the sacrament, serve in church positions, offer public prayers, or speak in meetings. He may not pay tithing except under certain conditions as determined by the bishop. Continuing verse 24, and also many withdrew themselves from among them. Now this was a great trial to those that did stand fast in the faith. Nevertheless, they were steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of God, and they bore with patience the persecution which was heaped upon them. <clears throat> to be immovable in righteousness is to become is to be consistent when it comes to matters of values and faith and courage. To be immovable is to have an allegiance to principles that is independent of circumstance and situation. It is to be firm in one's commitment to the truth, steady in one's loyalty to eternal verities. Verse 26, And when the priests left their labor to impart the word of God unto the people, <clears throat> the people also left their labors to hear the word of God. And when the priest had imparted unto them the word of God, they all returned again diligently unto their labors, and the priest not esteeming himself above his hearers, for the preacher was no better than the hearer, neither was the teacher any better than the learner, and thus they were all equal, and they did all labor, every man according to his strength. And they did impart of their substance every man according to that which he had to the poor and the needy and the sick and the afflicted, and they did not wear costly apparel, yet they were neat and comely. And thus they did establish the affairs of the church, and thus they began to have continual peace again, notwithstanding all their persecutions. One of the great lessons in the Book of Mormon is that one can be righteous in the face of gross wickedness. Thus one can stand in holy places and be not moved, can be at peace in a world of turmoil. When we get to the end of the Book of Mormon and we see Mormon and Moroni faced with uh, horrible things, that they were still righteous in, the, in, uh, in spite of all the things going on. Verse 29, And now because of the steadfastness of the church, they began to be exceedingly rich, having abundance of all things whatsoever they stood in need, and abundance of flocks and herds and fatlings of every kind, and also abundance of grain and of gold and of silver and of precious things, and abundance of silk and fine twine linen and all manner of good homely cloth. And thus in their prosperous circumstances they did not send away any who were, who were naked, or that were hungry, or that were thirst, or that were sick, or that had not been nourished, and they did not set their hearts upon riches, therefore they were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to those who stood in need. Given that there are millions of hungry and naked and destitute souls in the world, how are disciples of Christ to live with themselves? How are we to handle the fact that there is only a, as much, there is only so much we can do, only so many we can assist and still manage to care for our own? 
If every family contributed regularly to every needy cause, there would be insufficient money for the family to live. If every Christian man or woman gave themselves consistently to every project designed to alleviate suffering, there would be no time to earn a living to care for their own. True, disciples pray for discernment and for discretion. They seek to be as generous and giving as is appropriate and practical, even when we are not in a position to contribute dramatically to the alleviation of hunger in Africa or India. For example, there is still something we can do, something vital for those who aspire to discipleship. We can avoid, as we would a plague, the tendency to be indifferent, to ignore the problem because it is not in our own backyards. Further, we can teach our families or friends by precept and by example to use wisely the food and other resources we have been blessed to have. Even if we just become aware of suffering and pain, our heightened sensitivity helps us deal more tenderly, more charitably with sufferers within our own limited reach. At least those who those are starting points. And that was by Robert Millen. Verse 31, And thus they did prosper and become far more wealthy than those who do not belong to the church. We are prospered when we enjoy his spirit and feel his presence. George F. Richards said, The Lord expects us when he blesses us with the good things of this earth to remember those who are not so fortunate. We are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick, comfort those who mourn and minister unto those who are poor and needy, and thus become of that class to whom the, the Lord, when he shall come, shall say, Come, ye blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. John Taylor said, I will promise the Latter-day Saints that if they will go into these things, allowing God to dictate in the interests of Israel and the building up of his Zion on the earth, and take themselves and their individual interests out of the question, feeling they are acting for him and his kingdom, they will become the wealthiest of all people, and God will bless them and pour out wealth and intelligence and all the blessings that earth can afford. Verse 32, For those who did not belong to their church did indulge themselves in sorceries and in idolatry or idleness and in babblings, and in envyings and strife, wearing costly apparel, being lifted up in the pride of their own eyes, persecuting, lying, thieving, robbing. The catalog of differences between churchmen and non-churchmen includes two terms that have come to, to have similar meanings in modern English, theft and robbery. The nature of the list of things that churchmen did not do is otherwise made up of fairly distinct items. So we can understand the listing of theft and robbery as parallels of similar terms for the purpose of emphasis. These two terms appear to indicate a more strict differentiation between what makes a theft, which may be impersonal, a theft may occur when no one is around, and a robbery which requires the presence of the person being robbed, a very personal event. It is quite likely that Nephite law made a distinction between these two, these two crimes. Such a distinction would follow known traditions. There was a big difference under the law of Moses and in ancient Near Eastern uh, criminal law generally between being a thief and being a robber. So sometimes when we think of thieving and robbing, we think of it as being the same, but here there's a difference. Theft in early Jewish law. Um, a thief was an, was an inside member of the community. He usually worked alone and he stole things like chickens at night. A thief's, a thief's criminal offense was not serious and he was punished lightly, usually being required to return double that which he had stolen. A robber, on the other hand, was an outsider, literally an outlaw, living outside the community and outside the protection and rights of local law. Robbers hid out in the hills in bands, swearing oaths of secrecy and swooping down on villages, openly assassinating and plundering. Robbers were one of the greatest scourges of ancient civilization. Sometimes in Egypt, they occupied whole cities. 
Soldiers were sent out after them, and when they were caught, they were put to death on the spot. No trials were necessary. In both Greek and Hebrew, the words thief and robbers have very unique and different meanings. A thief is an embezzler or pilferer, one who steals by stealth. The robber's way is threat and violence. He is a plunderer who usually joins with others of his kind to prey upon the weak and unprotected. I guess that's why they call them Gadianton robbers instead of Gadianton thieves. In Hebrew history, the robber is a military problem and may be executed on the spot when caught. The Old Testament translation accurately reflects this difference, but the New Testament ignores it. This is clearly evidenced in the Strong's Greek lexicon, where the word lestus is defined as a robber, plunderer, a, fire, a freebooter, brigand, not to be confused with a thief, one who takes property by stealth. And that was uh, by uh, Brant Gardner. Continuing verse 32, committing whoredoms and murdering and all manner of wickedness. Nevertheless, the law was put in force upon all those who did transgress it inasmuch as it was possible. While the people are pure, while they are upright, while they are willing to observe law, the best results must follow the establishment and maintenance of a government like this. But on the other hand, if the people become corrupt, if they give way to passion, if they disregard law, if they trample upon constitutional obligations, then a republican form of government like ours becomes the worst tyranny upon the face of the earth. An autocracy is a government of one man, and if he be a tyrant, it is the tyranny of one man. But the tyranny and irresponsibility of a mob is one of the most grievous despotisms which can exist upon the face of the earth. And that was by George Q. Cannon. To finish up the chapter, verse 33, And it came to pass that thus, by thus exercising the law upon them, every man suffering according to that which he had done, they became more still and durst not commit any wickedness if it were known. Therefore there was much peace among the people of Nephi until the fifth year of the reign of the judges. I bear testimony of the truth of the gospel and of these principles here about uh, law and order. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.